Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Marcin Kroll. He's the CDC, the Chef de Cuisine over at Maison in Paris, France. The entire Maison team, so Marcin, uh, executive chef and owner Sota Atsumi, uh, their general manager and pastry chef, and, and some of their other guys too as well. They were all in town in San Francisco collaborating with the Saison team. So when I recorded the episode with Mark Bright, he kind of gave me a heads up that this was going down and invited me out there. So I flew out there. Uh, we actually recorded this on the Monday before they started service for the week. They did five nights. Uh, the first two nights, they kind of had the same menu, and then they wound up doing a different menu for nights three, four, and five. But we recorded this in Cezanne at the bar area just the night before they started service. So they were just finishing up some kind of service notes and stuff like that. And we wound up recording for about two hours and talking about Marcin's career. You know, he's worked at Noma. He's worked in South America and Chile. He's staged here in America. He's originally from Poland. He's hitchhiked uh, too as well around uh, a bit, you know, through Japan and stuff like that too as well. So we kind of talk about that and a lot about the differences between kind of Europe and America in terms of cooking and also just how food's consumed, food knowledge, food media too as well. You know, they have Top Chef Paris, which I didn't even know existed, or Top Chef France, maybe it's called, but I didn't even know that was like a spinoff. I just knew about the U.S. and Canada. So we talk about that too as well. And, and we cover a lot of different topics, and it was really cool to have somebody who has an extensive background cooking in Europe on the podcast to balance out some of the stuff that we've done previously. So Again, shout out to Mark Bright for setting this whole thing up. Shout out to Paul Chung for staying late and kind of hanging out in the background while we recorded. You're going to hear more from Paul. He pops on the podcast. His episode will be coming out in a few weeks. Normally, I don't announce those, but felt uh, it was relevant in this situation. So we got a lot of cool stuff in between the two. But you can follow Marcin on Instagram at umami underscore issues. You can also follow the restaurant at Maison underscore Sota. And then you can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on Twitter, Facebook, but mainly use the Instagram. Check out the website too as well, SpoonMob.com. We have all the contact information and different photos of everybody who's been on the podcast. Um, all kind of broken down in a couple different categories, so it's easy to find. And the newest one's always on top. So check that out whenever you get a chance to as well. And feel free to write in spoonmob at yahoo.com is our email, or you can send a message through the contact portal on the website, questions, comments, feedback, anything you want. It's an awesome experience. And then also just an awesome conversation, super unique. It's always fun to do these in person. We don't get to do too many of them in person just because Zoom is just easier for a lot of people scheduling and depending on where they're at around the country or whatever. So being able to do them in person is always a different experience. And I think it, it does make for just a different style of episode too, as well. There's a little bit more back and forth just because you don't have to worry about audio bleeding over or any or background noise or anything like that too, as well. So, but hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. So here's my conversation with chef Marcin Kroll, the CDC over at Maison in Paris, France. Cool. Thanks again for agreeing to do this last second. So you are here for one week, five dinners? Yeah, for five dinners. We start Tuesday. Went through Saturday. And you guys have been cooking a few different places. You guys have been kind of bouncing around. You went to Miro Kaimuki, which I've been there. I ate there. Oh, really? Oh, you know Chris? I do not know Chris. I have not reached out to him yet. Probably like a year ago, I think we were out there. And it's really good escargot. It's a really, really fun restaurant. We had a brilliant time there. That was a really fun pop-up we did. We ended up going there. We, we did two nights, but we stayed for 11 days. So we had a lot of time just to kind of hang out and do some cool stuff around. 
which is really, really cool. I mean, th- th- these pop-ups now, they've been taking us to really, really cool places. Uh, I mean, we're here now, uh, and just before that, we were actually in Oman for a week, which was just a crazy, crazy place. And we, we got to go out, like, see the deserts and stuff like that. And, yeah, all these pop-ups are actually, they're great. We obviously, we'd love to have our restaurant back uh, as soon as possible so we can start cooking again. But I think what we do now is also very, very fun. And in all these places that we go to, we uh, kind of pick up different ingredients here and there uh, that we can use further down the line. So, for example, in in this pop-up that we're going to do here, we were in Oman. And uh, Oman is one of the biggest producers of frankincense in the world. So we got some frankincense with us and frankincense ice cream. Uh, we'll feature on the menu, uh, which is it's, it's going to be, I don't know, we'll, we've just tasted it now. It's very, very punchy, but I think it's going to be really nice. With like ingredients like that, like you got it from Oman, yeah. did you guys just ship it here? We just brought it in our suitcase. It's one of those things, it's like we always take ingredients with us because, I mean, at Maison, we make a lot of things ourselves. We have like misos, vinegars, and stuff like that. That I think is like an underlying flavor of our cooking. And that's kind of what gives it that little bit of, you know, je ne sais quoi, if you will. And so we always bring that. And luckily, uh, knock on wood, we, we've not been ever stopped on border crossings. But it's one of those things I always shit myself. Because, like, depending on where you go, they'll do a last, like, scan of your luggage sometimes. And we've just got, like, vacuum bags of um, food. That's We've put a label on it, but that doesn't mean it was it is. And, like, we, we've done one where, like, the, the pastry uh, chef of ours, like, she wanted to take, like, her like special flowers and stuff like that so we just had like bags of vacuum packed like white powders with us uh and just hoping we wouldn't get stopped by anybody but yeah luckily it's been it's been fantastic so far yeah i flew out here with like four microphones bubble wrapped and i didn't know how that was gonna go so i've made it through fine though so i like to start with everybody kind of at the beginning you know and kind of run through their career right now you are the some people would say sue we here in america like you mentioned you know when we were talking before we started recording would say cdc at Maison, but how did you first start with cooking? Like back when you were a kid, were your parents kind of involved in restaurants? Was it something that you just fell into? I, I do think it's something I, I quite fell into. I, I think what I, I've been very lucky with is that I've worked at a lot of incredible places and uh, they've, it's really let me travel the whole world, which is something I, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do. Cooking at the beginning, I, I always had a massive passion for food. Uh, and I, I think that stemmed a lot of, I, I grew up in England for quite a while. And uh, that, that was around the time when Jamie Oliver was a really, really big thing. So it's kind of ironic that like a TV chef got me into like the world of fine restaurants. It kind of stemmed from that, and that's when when a passion from cooking came on. And then I did, did a few like uh, summer jobs and like working in some hotels and kitchens like that. And then uh, when I was 18, I I went over to Stage at Noma, and I did a two-week stage and ended up getting a job there, and stayed over there for just over a year. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of all kicked off from there. And I've been kind of working and traveling ever since. I've been very, very fortunate. I worked a little bit in South America as well. I helped open a restaurant in Japan, uh, which was amazing experiences. Other places in Scandinavia and spent now some time in France, which has been incredible. Taking you back to growing up in the UK, when you first kind of get started in restaurants, was it just kind of like you were in high school, needed a job? Yeah, kind of a thing like that. But but by that time, I'd moved back to Poland. That's where all these kind of like first initial jobs came from. It was never like an after-school thing. It was always like, oh, I had a summer vacation. Yeah, I just needed a bit of cash and like just do something as well. That's where it's done for. And some of them were horrible places. So what's your nationality then? I'm from Poland. So you're Polish? Yeah, yeah 100%. My last name's Polish. Oh, what's your last name? We pronounce it Shimalecki. That's probably not exactly how uh, you say it. How did you spell it? Uh, 
So that's how it's spelled. Ah, Chmielecki. Oh, you're completely off, aren't you? How do you pronounce it? Chmielecki is how... So in Polish, the, the CH, that's a hard H. So it's a Chmielewski. Chmielecki. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to get that down. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Chmielecki, but it's nice to finally uh, get somebody to actually pronounce that. Because I've... This is probably just like a myth or something, but I've somewhat heard that like if your name ends in like CKI, it means something versus SKI. That means absolutely nothing. That's just some bullshit that like my dad and my grandparents tried to feed me yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, 100%. Okay. Like, I I'm mean, not a descendant of royalty? No. My last name translates to king, and uh, I doubt I am a descendant <laughs> of royalty. Uh, so I, I don't think Himeleski is going to get you any further. So you're originally from Poland. And then you wind up in the UK as kind of your next stop? Born in Poland, but my, my family um, moved to, to England just outside of London. And that's kind of where I spent seven years, so like formative years. Grew up, went to like high school in London? Yeah, uh, from the age of uh, like seven to 16. So it's okay. kind of like that really kind of like formative time of like first of everything, you know. Were you a rebel? A little bit, yeah, 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 enough. Did you wind up finishing high school? I finished high school, but uh, I, I dropped out of uni after two months. What, what did it just didn't stick? Oh, it just did not, like, completely the opposite. Uh, yeah, it, it did not work out at all. Did you just go because you thought it was, like, I'm supposed to go? Oh, 100%. 100%. So, so um, like, I never thought that I was going to, like, end up in cooking. Even after uh, going to work at Noma, I was like, oh, okay, like, I always thought I would do a year there. And that would be kind of like my gap year thing uh, before going to uni, earn some money and just kind of have a really good good experience. Yeah, I ended up uh, studying in England. I went to a actually very decent university. Uh, I was studying agriculture and it was the best agriculture school in Europe. And people were so stupid. Like, no, it's crazy because like you think you're going to go to this environment where it's like, you know, you think you're going to be surrounded by kind of like minded, interesting people. Uh, that you can have proper conversations with, but like they were just all just thick as pig shit, if you will. And and the environment that I was in previously was the Noma, which was like is very focused and also very like like there was a lot of conversation and a lot of intelligent talks about food. And like I think that's one thing that really kind of stuck to me there is like they would almost in a way teach you about how to think and speak about food, which I think just added another kind of layer to to kind of working in a restaurant and being a chef that I, I never thought was part of it. So you staged at Noma while you were still in school? Yeah, yeah on, on my summer holiday from high school. Did you just apply to stage? Because I had somebody else on the podcast, Jason Zygmunt, who's a chef down in Dallas, and he staged at Noma, and he said they were always looking for people because it's so expensive in Copenhagen and Denmark. They were always kind of looking for stages, and they had, like, you know, 70 people in, like, the kitchen. I mean, I, I don't know how it is now, but I've heard at the new location they have a, a lot more stages. This was, I mean, this is when I was very young, so I'm 27 now, so this was eight years ago uh, when I was there. So it was still at, at the old location. With the test houseboat, with the test kitchen, or experimental kitchen? That was, uh, it was, like, it was called the Nordic Food Lab at that time. Uh, and, and that houseboat was kind of a great guy, Joshua Evans, uh, ran it then uh, with a guy called Roberto. And uh, yeah, they basically did uh, like all these like crazy ferments and started doing these like garums and stuff like that that are now just a staple in so many restaurants and kitchens. Did you ever work in the test kitchen or were you staging in the kitchen? No, no, so, so I staged in the kitchen and then I, I worked full time there. I came back, but it was always in the kitchen. I, I, I never... Never did the experimental stuff? It's a very kind of... The way they do it there, which is intelligently done, they're very separated 
the, the actual test kitchen doesn't interact that much with the regular kitchen because they're kind of in the zone of kind of creativity and focus uh, that they need to be that's on a completely different wavelength than the craziness that's going on downstairs. Yeah, he said uh, that they always sent him to rob the ingredients that uh, yeah. the kitchen would uh, prep and everything. And he'd just come in and, like, steal, like, you know, asparagus and stuff. And they're just, like... Guys are running out of stuff in service and just, like, only noticing it then. Working at uh, Noma, you know, that seems like it was a real formative experience for you. Really hooked you into wanting to do that as a career, essentially, right? Oh, 100%. I, I think it definitely showed me that foods uh it can be so much more and then it's 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 also a platform for people to do amazing things through kind of like your podcast yeah nice plug there (laughs) no but you you know what i mean where it's like it's not just cooking it it can be something more than that which is uh, i think very very cool and interesting to like it showed you that you can like take yourself somewhere through food what do you think you would have gone into career-wise if you didn't go into cooking oh it would have been something horrible it, it would have been something that I failed at miserably. I don't know. I, I, I really, it's one of those things, probably just like finance or something stupid like that. Just like a corporate job. So you never went to culinary school, right? Or no, anything no, like no, that? never, never, never. Do you regret it at all? Not at all. No, no, no. I, I think, I mean, you can learn just as much on the job. It's better help uh, learning on the job than what you learn in school. I mean, you can kind of prepare somebody for what kitchen life is uh, in a classroom. I think that's impossible. I, I, I do think, obviously, like, there's certain things that can be learned in school. But, I mean, because you guys in America, you, you go to culinary school for a crazy amount of time now. It's like three years. So it depends on the culinary school. Like, the CIA, it's pretty much like a two-year kind of deal. There are ones that will do it for, like, a year. And there are ones where it's a year, but, you know, half of it's classroom and the other half is actually, like, externing in a restaurant. So it kind of just depends. But... I like to ask everybody just because I'm sure it's a little different over in Europe, you know, the culinary schools. Again, it depends on the country. But, like, for example, in Eastern Europe, like, you can also go to, like, job school, which is, like, you go to a regular high school, but it's, like, a cooking school as well. And you do, like, classes there and stuff like that. And that kind of prepares you for a restaurant life, or supposed to be. But I, I just think... To really know that you want to do it, you have to immerse yourself in the experience fully. You have to go just dive in head first. So many people, like, you, you give up so much money and so much of your time, and then you can't really say whether you like it or not because you've never been in that environment. And working in a kitchen is, like, especially in these kind of, like, upper-end restaurants, it's a, I mean, I hate to say it because everybody says it, it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle and it's something that you're, you're either going to love or you're going to hate. The, the hours are brutal, but it's also the most rewarding job out there. So... It's a give and take. Do you guys have stages? We do, we do. I, I mean, but the, the way we do it is we, we don't like to have too many at a time. So we'll, we'll have one stage at a time. So we can really kind of take our time with them. And they, they really become a part of the team. So they'll take on that kind of commie role. We'll give them a little section and service, something easy. But like, just so they're truly involved. Because like, I'd never want somebody just to shuck peas all day and then go home. You know, it's, we also have to give something back to them. And I think we do have that duty towards the stages as well. So if a stage came up to you and was like, hey, I'm, I'm really serious about wanting you know, to be a chef. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I'd be like, no, no, because you're already here. So what's the point of you're literally just going around. You've already found yourself in an environment where you know you like it. You know you can learn here. Uh, you should just continue with that. I, I think if you're already in a restaurant, if you're already in a kitchen, there's no point. It's like taking five steps back. 
at, at that point, I'd say it's a waste of time. That's the general consensus here, too, The with the one caveat being our culinary schools are not at all business focused. So they don't teach you how to run a business, essentially. So like P&L or, you know, like order receipts or cost accounting or anything. So that's always kind of been the big knock on our culinary schools is people are like, they should integrate more back office, like how to actually run a restaurant from behind the kitchen. Which would be fantastic because also, I mean, it's stuff that, that's stuff that that's more difficult to learn on the job. These are things that are usually taken care of by the very senior members. And it's also kind of done behind closed doors, you know, like you're not going to share your numbers uh, with your commies or anything like that. And then in, in return to that, they're, they're probably not going to be able to learn that side of the job, which I, I think, you know, that would be great. But then it's like, realistically, how long does it take to, to teach that? Is it going to take two years? I mean, if there was like a crash course available for people, a three month really intense teaching you how to run a business, I think that would be incredible and it would be extremely helpful. The time commitment of a culinary school is the factor that lets it down so much. The time commitment of food and a restaurant itself, that's crazy. Before you really, really kind of know what you're doing, it's going to take you a couple of years. And if you've already taken off a couple of years of, uh, of culinary school, then you're kind of starting behind. And at the end of the day, like, it's a young man's game. It's, it's very physical. It's very, very mentally tasking. And it's, uh, I think people need to realize that there's only a certain amount of time that you can do it for hate to say it this way but like you compare it to sports like there's only a certain amount of time that you can do the the job of being a chef at the kind of like you can do it all level and then after time you need to think about the kind of the post career of your peak like you need to you're gonna slowly move away from the kitchen you're gonna have other people help you run it and that and that i think is also really really important to, to realize and understand that you do have a very limited amount of time to be able to probably because there's only sort of like so long you can do these hours for and then your body's going to start giving, your head's going to be spinning all over the place. So do you think that amount of time is probably mid-40s? I'd say even slightly earlier. I mean, again, I've, I've not hit my mid-40s yet, or, or early 40s, luckily, uh, so, so I wouldn't know. But it, I think it also depends on the person. Obviously, there's exceptions with people and, and everybody that can do it, do it forever. But I think people need to realize that it's, it's the short amount of time that you have, and you need to organize it properly, and you need to think of... How are you going to be able to achieve as much as you can within that time if you are ambitious, which, uh, you know, I hope people are. After you work at NOMA, where do you go next? That was my tiny little stint in university, uh, which failed. And then I, I moved to, to Portugal, uh, where a friend of mine uh, who I'd worked with at NOMA, he was a sous chef there, and, and he opened a, a little restaurant in Portugal. And I, I think it was a really good time because I was a bit like, it was a strange time because like, I thought I wouldn't be cooking, then I went to university, and that really didn't work out. So it was kind of in the middle of nowhere in Portugal, and it was a good little breathing space to kind of just really start cooking again and realize that this is really what I loved, just cooking, doing also the basic part of the job. I mean, like I was speaking to you, like, obviously there's so much more you can take a career within food, but I think the most important thing at the beginning is you need to get the foundation of it well, and that's to really, really love cooking and to really just love the daily life of a restaurant. Which, which is, I think, super important. What kind of style of food was it that you're cooking in Portugal? I mean, it was obviously like quite inspired by Noma, but like we were trying to kind of really do our own style of things, and uh, with only Portuguese ingredients, it was really, really fun. Like some incredible produce out there, like fish and stuff like that, it was fantastic. So yeah, that was really, really good. And then afterwards, I moved to Chile, where I spent a year there. I was the the sous chef at a restaurant called uh, Borago. 
it's on this whole 50 best thing and like it's a really really big opportunity for me at such a young age to kind of help run this kind of restaurant and that's where I, I did also uh working in the test kitchen and kind of created all the dishes for it and that was a crazy experience because it was just i did an interview for it and like and then i flew over there like within a week and it was just i moved completely to the other side of the world and i hadn't really left europe that many times before and it was just it was just a shocking experience from beginning to end and it was it was amazing but there was only so long i could have done that for so how did you interview then? Was it just remotely over yeah, the phone? Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was over the phone. We had a Skype interview actually while I was doing prep because I remember I was so in the shit that day. I had to keep going with prep while I was just having a little laptop on my station and just like, I think that's, that's what impressed them the most. And they were like, yeah, okay, we'll get them over. So when you're working at the restaurant in Chile, you're part of the kind of test kitchen, but were you also in yeah, the main I, kitchen too? My days there would work in that I'd be the first person in the morning, do the test kitchen in the morning. And then kind of test dishes out all day. And then when the rest of the cooks got in, I'd kind of come downstairs and I'd do mise en place with them and then run service with them. So it was, it was managed in that sense where I kind of could do it all. So was this also kind of like your first time in a kitchen where you're managing other chefs oh, too? Oh, 100%. And I think coming from these very, very kind of like ambitious restaurants, I think nothing could have prepared me for the difference of culture shock, which is just how people were, I don't want to say in a bad way, lazy or like coming in like 45 minutes in or like half an hour late was, was just a very normal thing. That culture of it was shocking, but I think it was a good place to do it because it took a lot of just peace of mind to be able to do it properly and uh, to run it in a, in a way that was nice for everybody, which at the beginning it was not. Even, even from my side, I was terrible at it when I started. Uh, and it was one of those jobs that all the other jobs that I had before was you always had people above you kind of and very good and experienced people that could guide you. And this is the first time that I kind of had to figure stuff out really myself on the job. And it was another great experience. What was the, would you say, the most challenging part of managing other cooks in the kitchen for the first time? At that place, it was, it was keeping them motivated and excited the whole time, which is... I think something that also now we, uh, that I think of it like swings back to the job at Maison where it's like we do try to keep things as exciting for people like we'll change the menu every day it's always new ingredients just so people have that freshness in their mind and, and it, it becomes an exciting place to work and people are looking forward to, to what we're going to do today because it's always different and in that restaurant I think a lot of people were just kind of stuck on autopilot uh, and if that happens I just I don't think that's ever a good solution because if you are coming in to do crazy hours, at least kind of make it fun. Make sure that it's, it's exciting. And if you're changing things every day, if you're switching it up, that to a certain extent, uh, it just keeps your mind fresh and it keeps you excited. And if anything, it makes you more awake. If you're going to go 18 hours a day or whatever hours a day on autopilot, you're, you're going to end up falling asleep. I think that was something that I really did learn there of just how to motivate people properly. While you were there, is that when they eventually make it onto the 50 best list, or was that... They were on it before. We bumped up a lot that year. I don't know exactly, but I think we were, like, low 40s. When I joined, and we got, like, mid-30s. And then Noma was always on it, and now they're kind of off of it because they're the winner category or, you know, best restaurant category. But 
When you're working at those places, is that a big deal, the 50 best? Oh, it's a massive deal. It's a massive deal. I mean, when I came back to work, it was the year that they got knocked out of the number one spot and they went down to number two. And I remember leading up to, to the world's 50 best that year, like you could just feel there was a certain tension in the air, but also a certain excitement uh, of looking forward to it. And we got it back that, that year, back to number one, and it was just absolutely euphoric. Oh, it was just one of those great moments in life that you'll always remember. Yeah, uh, the, I think it, it, it all depends on the restaurant. I, I think back then, people cared a lot more about it, uh, and it, it was a lot more legitimate than it is now. And uh, so, obviously, yeah, people really, really, really cared about it, and, and it was a big deal. And, like, I remember I, I, I used to practically know those lists off by heart, and, like, now it's like I don't even look at them anymore because it's just, it's not, it's not what it used to be. I, I, I don't really know what changed in that organization, but something did. Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, it'd be money. I mean, there's also so many lists now, too. Because you have the 50 Best, which is, like, run by... It's something... Uh, it's out of UK, the company that owns it. But then, like... So the French started, like, their own, which is, like, La List. La List. I, I've never even looked at that one. You have to download an app. It's always a French restaurant. It was Le Bernardin and, I think, Guy Savoy are, like, always, like, the two best that they have on that thing. But then you have like the Michelin Guide. You have all these sub lists for the fifty best, and then depending on where you are, I mean, they have um, what's the other one? Uh, it starts with a G. Can't remember the name of it, but there's like another Gomio or something like that. It's like Galt Gomio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, yeah I, uh, not pronounced that it right. I, I Shocker. Mean, the thing is, it's like you can't really rank restaurants. I don't think on, on that sense because people will always be subjective. What will be my best meal of my life is is not going to be yours. And uh, restaurants are also so dependent on a like day to day basis. They're different, you know, from the service to get to like whether the person's having a good day or like whether they're just a bit grumpy today. Like, it, it's all going to affect the meal that you have. And that's why I think like genuinely trying to rank restaurants is an almost impossible task. I don't think you could do it. I mean, you're it's all subjective. And with the world of social media, like, it's just become a bit of a popularity contest with these World's 50 Best and stuff like that. It's just... I mean, it might be a bigger deal in Europe. I feel like in America, like, when the 50 Best list comes out, it usually comes out, or it did anyways, in June. And there'd be all this, maybe like a week's worth of, like, hype before it. It'd come out in a couple days after, and then it was... That was it. Even with, like, the Michelin Guide, like, those come out in the fall normally... And there'll be a run-up to it, and they'll be like, hey, you know, the New York guide's coming out this week. Who's going to be a three-star or whatever? Are they going to move anybody up? And then the list comes out, and it's like, this is what the list is. And everybody posts on Instagram like, hey, you know, we got three or two or whatever. And all that comes out, and then it just kind of trails off. Do you guys have, have a, your own kind of system of, like, uh, your own guides? The U.S. system would be basically the James Beard Awards. That's all U.S. only. You see, I, I've never followed that, but that one's a bit weird because you have like a semi-final and stuff like that. No, there's like a... So yeah, there's a nomination process where basically anybody can be nominated and then they down-select this panel, which is former winners and writers and all this other stuff. And they down-select to like 20 people per category and there's mm, somewhere between 11 and 15 categories. Sounds like they're just dragging it out, like just for longevity of keeping it interesting. Yeah, that's and then a couple months later, it's five finalists for all the categories and then they have an award ceremony it was in chicago that they were doing it for a number of years and they have like a big banquet and what are the awards is it like 
best restaurant or best restaurant like but also like best restaurant they'll have a best chef new york because new york's such a big market but then they'll have best chef mid-atlantic which would be dc philly you know baltimore like all these kind of mid-atlantic major markets and, and states that cover it so and but they're constantly like shifting with the categories and then they canceled them last year because they didn't have enough like winners everybody that was going to be a winner there weren't enough according to what they released like there weren't enough minorities or, or women chefs that were going to be winners so they kind of wound up canceling it and had to go back to the drawing board of how they were going to vote for stuff that's strange that they canceled it because of that i mean they kind of blamed it on covid but like some of the chefs started pulling out because they were like you know it's kind of weird that we're going to have restaurant awards when like everybody shut down and then once i think a couple big names started pulling out they wound up canceling it because those people were like i'm speaking out like hey we probably shouldn't do this this year kind of thing i mean we had michelin in europe as well which was really weird we had it when the pandemic hit and like for example a lot of places just shut down and they said like we're gonna wait for covid to blow over and uh larpege got like uh three stars even though they were only open for a couple months that year yeah they like froze everybody's stars like you weren't going to lose stars apparently and like that was what they kind of came out and said like nobody will lose a star because of covid or whatever it was kind of like the thing like we had i think per se was like closed the entire time and like like there was three stars in new york that were closed the entire time and they didn't they were like doing to-go food and they're like no it's still three stars staying on that kind of like for you personally is a michelin guide does that even matter to you not anymore. I think we, when I was younger, it was like a thing, you know, like, oh, you open a restaurant, you want to get a couple of Michelin stars. Now, I, I mean, obviously, like, you'd like one, you'd like a couple. We, we don't have any at Maison. Uh, but I think what's more important to me is just kind of feeling like that we're doing a job, good job on a personal level. I, I think having worked at all these places, I, I kind of know what a good level is. And, and I think I, I, I do have a good judge of that. And I think if both myself and Soto, if like we feel that we're on a very high level, I think that's just as much if we're happy with what we're doing. That's to, to a certain extent uh, more important than, than any of these awards. I'd rather have that than the other way around. Then, you know, there's people that literally just cook for these awards and they do a certain style of food just so they can get these stars. And... I just think that sounds horrible. I'd be completely miserable doing that. I think as time has gone on uh, in the industry, like for me, like all these stars and awards have been completely insignificant. And uh, just the two things that you want is you want to be able to cook any food that you want to cook and that you're full. And if you got those two things, then I think that's a higher praise than any award can give you. So after working in Chile, where do you go? I was a bit burnt out in Chile, and uh, basically, I had to do something different. Uh, so I went to Japan, and I went for a three-month trip. It was my first time ever going to to Asia, I think. And uh, I, I started around for two months, and then I did a month of, of hitchhiking there. So I hitchhiked from, from Kyoto uh, to a place called Ia Valley. Uh, which is another really weird story because I wanted to go hitchhiking, but I didn't really know where I was going to go. Like, I didn't have a general direction. So basically, I, I was helping a friend. He just opened a restaurant in Kyoto, and I was kind of helping him uh, get it up and running. And it was a beautiful, tiny little restaurant. It had a counter and six seats by the counter. And uh, basically, on my last two nights there, we had some foreign customers. 
uh, and one of them was telling me about this place called Ia Valley, which just sounded incredible. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to go there. And then the other people were telling me about a place called Nawashima, which is like an island of, of art uh, in Japan. And it was quite close to each other. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make it my goal to go to both of those places. And it ended up being a really incredible, life-changing journey. It was great. It was, I had so much fun there. Uh, people were so kind. I, I've never been to a place where hitchhiking was easier. My buddy's wife wrote a, um, a little sign in Japanese for me that I just had on the side of the road, and, uh, and off we went from there. Yeah, hitchhiking in America is not really recommended. It's not very safe, is it? No. So I love this story. There was this tech university or something like that. I forget which one it is, but they built this like autonomous robot, kind of looked like a person, was kind of small, like probably no taller than the microphone or whatever. And this thing could kind of walk on its own or whatever. It was like solar powered. And it made it all the way across Canada. Like people would, you know, it was a hitchhiking robot and people would drive it to the next thing or plug it in or whatever, right? Made, made it all the way from Vancouver all the way over to like St. John's, you know, in Canada. No problem. So then they wanted to do the reverse route in America. So it was like starting in Maine, going all the way to like LA. Once they got to Philly, like somebody just smashed the shit out of it on the side of the road. No way. That's Philly. I mean, Philly's a pretty rough place. To, it's like the roughest like sports town we have. Like, oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty like cutthroat. I wouldn't recommend really hitchhiking in America. I mean, you could do it, but it's just not something I would probably advise. Maybe just Greyhound bus it. So after hitchhiking in Japan, I spent all my money in Japan, and uh, I had to get a quick job somewhere. And uh, I went to, a buddy of mine was running this uh, two-star restaurant in Sweden, and I went there uh, just for a little bit, quick time. I think I spent like six months there, just kind of earning some money. It's, it's very good pay in Sweden. Yeah, I just kind of had to, had to reset myself quickly. And then, and then after that, I, I did something I always wanted to do, which was uh, I just bought a one-way ticket to Paris, and I printed out, I think it was like 12 copies of my CV. Uh, and I just knocked on a bunch of doors and I was like, okay, if, if I'm going to go to 12 restaurants and apply, and if I don't find a job, I don't find a job, and then I'll leave Paris if I don't manage to do it. So I ended up going to Paris and I spent like a month just kind of doing different trials in different kitchens. And uh, yeah, I got really, really lucky. I, I ended up working at some incredible places. And long story short, I ended up uh, at a restaurant called Chateaubriand there. Yeah, and I spent some time working there, and it was, it was phenomenal. So with the restaurants that you were targeting, did you have specific oh, yeah, like, yeah. qualifiers, like has to be doing this type of cuisine or this kind of level, or how did you make that 12-restaurant list? Just, just places that interested me. I think the number is a little bit skewed there. I don't remember how it was, but like, I remember like I was at my parents' house. I used their printer, printed out like yay copies of it, and I was like, oh, just walk around and knock on doors and just see what happens yeah it was, it was a month of like kind of walking around and like trialing around living in a hostel uh like just completely dirty hostel uh like just having my knife case walking back to every day from like dirty services uh and then yeah eventually i ended up staying and it was it was so fun what do you think it was about that opportunity that that they wanted you to work there versus the others where, or was it vice versa where you're like, you got in the kitchen for a couple of days and you're like, eh, I don't know if I really want to be here. There was a couple of places that I didn't want to be at where like, and it was surprising. It was, it was usually like the more Michelin ones that I didn't want to be at. I was like, Oh, I wouldn't really want to work in this environment. And, and I came to, to this place called Chateaubriand and it was like a tiny kitchen. They only had like, it was the size of a shoebox. 
there was, I think, four of us in there. They changed the menu every day. It was just so spontaneous. I, I'd never been in an environment like that, uh, where everything had to be different every day, and you just kind of forced yourself to, to just, just really, really kind of cook. And uh, it was a crazy restaurant. It was like, we'd, we'd do like 80 covers a day, the four of us, and like everything changed every day. And like the chef there didn't want us to start and work crazy hours. So, so we'd only be able to like start work at two every day for all this time. So, and like there, there were certain things he just refused to prep. Uh, so for so many of the things like, uh, like on the cooking station, like a lot of the times you'd just be taking like whole veg with you. And you're just prepping them in service as you go. So, like, you just take, like, whole carrots and just peel them and then you cook. And it was, like, it was a way of cooking that I'd never experienced before. And it was, like, I think it also influenced me greatly of, like, how I want to cook and how I want to do it. And also, like, it was such a fun environment. We drank, like, crazy in that kitchen. We had a bar next door that that they owned. It was called uh, Le Dauphin, the Dolphin. And uh, basically kitchen team from or anybody that worked in the restaurant you had to pay for the beers but each beer was 50 cents so we just go there every night after service have just some of the best times ever and then go in the next day in the morning and the chef would be like what do you want to cook today and like i've served some of the best food and i've served some of the worst food i've made in my life in that restaurant i don't think i've ever would have been able to serve that great stuff that we did there without doing the horrible stuff which is a weird and funny way to look at it and and he, he was completely okay sometimes having something that was like not great but he's like but at least we went for it and at least we tried something new is that more stressful to work in an environment like that because you don't know what you're cooking that day like you have no idea you can't prep for it at all because it depends on whatever ingredients come in or whatever versus like knowing like this is my list of this is all my produce that's coming this is all my fish that's coming like I think it's actually less stressful for me on a personal level because if you're doing the exact same thing on a daily basis, you see the change in it of how this is different today than it was yesterday. And sometimes, for example, like ingredients aren't the same all the time. And it's like it's stressful because you need to make the exact same thing that you did the day before better. But maybe the ingredients aren't as good for it today for, for that particular preparation of it. it ebbs and flows just for example like i don't know like we'd get in uh, at the at chateau Brown, like we'd get some produce and we'd taste it and be like oh you know what these peas would be really really good for this rather than doing like you have to have this pea dish every single day but it might not be as good because peas are such a, a constant change uh, on a day-to-day basis so i think if anything it was more liberating and it was more kind of relaxed Especially knowing that everybody around you was doing the, the kind of the same thing of just, we'll just do it. What was the best thing that you cooked there and what was the worst thing that you cooked there? I don't know if I can remember the best one. I, I can remember the worst one. We once did a dish. It was an ice cream. It was a dessert of um, blackcurrant sorbet with, uh, with an angelica puree. And then it had frozen grated feta over the top. It was disgusting. It was, it was unedible. It was, it was actually, oh no, wait, sorry, there was one that was, war- we, we, we didn't serve it to all the guests, but I remember one night, I think he drank a bit, or like, he must have smoked a joint or something, and he came onto the pastry section, and he just took some artichokes that were like cooked in like barrigold, so like, like vinegary, like white wine cooked, and he just sprinkled them with sugar and blowtorched them, and he gave that to somebody as a petty, like, uh, as a, like, with coffee, and that could have not been good. There's no way that was good at all, but... Sometimes you got to risk having the worst to be able to have the best, I think. And that was just a really, really funny environment to work in. 
So where do you go from there? So from there, I was there, I was having a really, really good time. I really wanted to stay uh, for a long, long time. But then came the opportunities. Uh, Noma was opening a restaurant in Japan. Oh, the thing they did, the, they did like a documentary about it, I think. No, right? that, or that, that was that, the pop-up. That, that was the pop-up. And then they, they opened a proper brick and mortar restaurant. And, and the opportunity came there to kind of go there and be part of the opening team and like have a bit of an influence on this place. And the opportunity was too tempting. Uh, to like, it, It's just not something I could have said no to. And I think on a certain level, uh, I had a feeling of like, I didn't finish my time at Noma, like I could have done more there. Uh, and th- there was a certain feeling of unfinished business that I think was really, really important for me. And after the amazing three months of just starting around hitchhiking Japan, uh, I always wanted to go back. Uh, and there came opportunities, people asking me to come back, but like Visa was a bit of an issue. And working with this kind of slightly bigger company, they can set these things up for you. And it was, it was it was too good of an opportunity to pass. Was the restaurant there still like Noma and Copenhagen? Where I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of foraging and stuff like that too. But it was not trying to be the sister restaurant, but it was trying to be its own thing. But took a lot of cues from the one in Copenhagen. Oh, hundred percent. I I think you know every sister restaurant that, that will open or anybody that's worked at a place that's so specific in the way that they work is is always gonna. I'm not going to say it's going to be a copy, but but you're so heavily influenced by it uh, that you, you almost can't escape it, and, and I don't think you should. And and the the, the chef that opened it, Thomas Frabel, he he'd been at Noma for ten years before he opened that, and he ran the test kitchen. So you could argue so much of the food at Noma was his. So so I don't think I think it's almost unfair to expect him to do something completely different. That's basically just the style that he did, and it's been ingrained in him. And He's been, I think, you know, part of that and part of the style that they do there more than anyone. Kind of poses an interesting question of like, well, whose food is it at the end of the day? But also it's, if that's his food and the people associated as Noma, well, that's just the people's fault, uh, if you know what I mean. Thomas Keller, right? Like, is a very famous chef. But he retired like a decade ago. He's still in the kitchen at the French uh, Laundry. Of course, of course. But he's not there every day. Like he's doing other stuff with the Bocuse d'Or team and, and all that stuff too. So, but people who go to the French Laundry for the first time, they're like, "I just ate at Thomas Keller's." But you don't necessarily know if he was there cooking. Like, who was cooking your food that night? It was probably David Breeden or and the entire. It's still the entire team. They still no, take no, the direction. No, of course. But and and I, I'm pretty sure it's just as good whether he's there or not. I, I mean, I'm sure he's got one of the best teams out there. I don't think you can say that you're eating his food. I mean, he, he's one of the biggest legends out there of the of cooking. I don't think you can say that it's his food. It's been inspired by him. It's the restaurant that he set up. It's got his DNA through it. But the people that are kind of making the dishes and coming up with them, that's somebody else. I mean, you, you can make the same argument for Cezanne. You know, like, it was set up by, by your man Skeens. And, like, you know, some of his dishes are still on. But, like, it, it's evolved further than that. And it's, it's got imprints of him, but it's no longer his food. We have Las Vegas, right? And there's a lot of corporate restaurants. There's a lot of chefs that open restaurants in Vegas. They put their name on it. I think maybe the only one who even kind of probably spends any time out there is like Savoy because he only has the two. Just a guess. So actually, uh, Sota used to work for, for Robichon. He used to help open all the new spots. So he helped open the one in Hong Kong for sure. And I believe he, he did the one in Vegas as well. Uh, and they just kind of travel out there and like try to teach people of how to do their food. Uh, and some of this, actually, yeah, he was saying, like, some of the produce they'd get in Vegas was incredible. So, yeah, the trick to that is, I guess, if you're a big enough name, like, you can get 
the casino's like influence to get your produce like from really really great people you know great farmers and whatnot and kind of go through them because they have like all the logistics down of like how to get stuff shipped in and out and they also pay primo primo dollar with las vegas like a lot of chefs put you know their name on a restaurant and maybe go out there once or twice a year or whatever it's kind of like a little bit of a cash grab or everything but in vegas kind of the longest a restaurant usually lasts is like, if it's involved with one of the casinos, is like 10 years. And then it kind of closes. Then the casino rebrands to something else or puts something else new in there. Do you think that's roughly the lifespan of, of a restaurant, about 10 years? I don't think it's the lifespan of a, of a restaurant. I think it's the lifespan of a chef. We're speaking about longevity. I, I think, you know, if you're going to run a place properly, like, you're going to need to take a break after 10 years, for sure. I think restaurants can run through and, and this is where, where you have to set it up properly and put your DNA through to the team and and kind of be able to have the, the restaurant run better or just as good without you kind of, kind of slightly stepping away. I, I think that's important. But I do think longevity of restaurants is also a very important thing. I, I don't think people make restaurants that last a long time anymore. We were actually speaking with Paul today like about Paris. It's like now Top Chef has become a massive thing over there. Top Chef France, big. I didn't know. I, I mean, I know we had the U.S. and the Canada one, which if you've never seen the Canada one, it's pretty hilarious because all the contestants are like really nice to each other. But the judges are like, cut, like they'll sit there and say like, this is garbage. Why did you like serve this to me? Where they won't really do that in the U.S. one. The U.S. one's like a little bit more like they try and like, Play up the drama a little bit, kind of on it. I actually think it's one of the most damaging things for the food industry. Because basically what's going to happen is somebody's going to win it. And the only thing they can do is they need to open a restaurant as quick as possible. So it's going to be a rushed opening of somebody who's probably not very experienced in opening restaurants. Or in the culinary industry for, for, for that sense. And in a year's time, there's going to be somebody new that won the show. And they're the next hot big thing. So there's all these restaurants that are opening, and they're not built to last. They're, they're, they're built to make a quick buck, and that doesn't help, one, it doesn't help the, the people or the culinary industry, and also it, it doesn't help the city. It doesn't make it, I think restaurants should be places that make a city a more interesting place. And I think this does quite the opposite. So you'd never go on it if they asked you? No, never. No, 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 100%. I mean, I know people that have, and, and I actually know somebody that's on it now. Wish them the best of luck, but I, I'd never do it personally. Maybe it's a bit different in the States. No, it's pretty much the same. I mean, if you look on the U.S. one, they're in, I mean, it's close to like their 20th season. And the people that have, who won it, that like are household names, there's probably like maybe three or four. You're hoping that if you live in a big enough city, like we in Columbus, Ohio, we had a guy on the show last year first ever time we had somebody from columbus so like there's people that watch top chef for the first time ever because it was somebody from their city was on the show sure and that person's probably going to go back to columbus ohio open a restaurant so that show like aired last year he had a restaurant that he was a chef at they basically shut down for all of covid so he kind of did some pop-up stuff bouncing around with like other people that were on the show and he's supposed to open a restaurant like in columbus this fall but i mean that's going to be a whole nother season of Top Chef will have aired because they just started a new one, like you were saying. You know, it might be a big deal for people in Columbus. Are you going to get somebody from Chicago that goes to Columbus to try that restaurant? Probably not anymore. You probably missed the window. These shows also, they build up so much hype 
uh, of a restaurant that this restaurant is going to be surely fully booked for the first couple of months. They don't really have to try to be excellent. Yeah, they basically only have to be great when they have a food critic come in, probably. They're only going to be open for max two years. And for half of that time, they really don't have to be good for the average person. Because they're going to get people come through regardless. All they have to do is probably keep one signature dish that he made on the show that one of the judges really enjoyed. That's going to get Instagrammed all over. And then the rest of the menu doesn't have to be great. You say that's the worst thing for like the culinary industry. I would argue that the dollar menu is the worst thing for the culinary industry. What's the dollar menu? This came out like years ago, but McDonald's, right? They have a section of their menu is a dollar menu. So you can get a hamburger for a dollar. There's certain items, it's like maybe 10 items or whatever that you can get for a dollar. So you could in theory get like an entire meal for like five bucks. But what that did is it distorted everybody's brain. And now everybody thinks my hamburger should cost somewhere between one and five dollars. Now, you could argue that, are you really getting an actual hamburger? You know, it's all processed meat, all that stuff. But if you put a hamburger on a menu here in Columbus, like for $10, people are like, I'm never paying that. I'm not. But the price of ground beef is like $7.99, $8.99 at least. Then everything else plus labor. Like you're losing money if you don't price it at 12 bucks or something like that, you know? That's horrible. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. But I think one thing that people need to realize is like food's too cheap. Food is way too cheap. It costs so much to make food. And like I heard somebody recently say like, there's no such thing as cheap food. Like somebody along the line is going to pay for this badly. Whether, whether it's some like employees that are getting completely battered and uh, not paid enough. Whether it's animals that are like mistreated. There, there's no such thing as food that can really, really be cheap. No, I, the big problem in America is people don't understand food costs. So, like, they don't understand, like, just because something's on the menu for 15 bucks, well, it's cost of goods plus shipping plus labor and time and all that stuff. And it, so there's this weird imbalance here where people don't want to spend any money, you know, they don't want to spend 15 bucks for a hamburger, but then also... They're like outraged that the minimum wage isn't at least 15 bucks an hour. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, well, you kind of have to find a sweet spot in the middle. Like you can do both, but like at some point you're going to have to kind of pay for both. I think the most important thing is people need to realize that restaurants need to get more expensive, unfortunately, which is like, I mean, everybody loves getting stuff for free and on the cheap, but it's, it's just not a sustainable model that we're running right now. And things need to be a lot more expensive for restaurants to be better yeah because like here in america pretty much you know a lot of your average you know restaurants food they might make margins would be you know a couple bucks or something like that you know somewhere between one and maybe five percent or whatever so where they make most of the money is the alcohol sales is that the same in europe kind of deal oh 100 uh, percent. i think uh, alcohol sales are definitely what keeps a lot of places afloat Especially in, like, for us in France, I mean, like, we sell a lot of wine and people really do like to have, like, a lot of nice wine with their meal and, and for lunch as well. So it's like in a lot of towns, like, I, th- I think in bigger cities, like, I'm sure that's the case in New York is like people don't really drink for lunch. So th- that really affects sales in France. It's uh, everybody likes to have a good time at all times. Where do you go after Noma, the Noma in Japan? Uh, the Noma in Japan, so it closed due to COVID. Had a bit of time off. I took a quick little job in London. Uh, again, make some cash. But, but oh, sorry, before that, I, I went traveling. 
I had to leave. My visa had unfortunately expired, and we tried reapplying for a new one, but it was just very, very difficult because also apparently I was too young to get the visa that we were applying for. It's just the way it worked over there. I did a bit of traveling. Uh, I went to Australia for a month. A really good old friend of mine took me in, and I just hung out with him in Melbourne, just like doing absolutely nothing. Then I went to Hong Kong, spent some time with a, a, another friend, uh, uh, just working. And then I went back to Japan on a tourist visa, and I just traveled the whole country uh, by bus and train. And I went from from Tokyo to all the way to Okinawa. Uh, and then obviously ran out of money. Uh, took a really kind of like quick, like kind of like sell your soul job uh, in London. And then I actually came to the States and long story short, I was supposed to do something in, in New York and it just didn't really work out. It was in the right place, right time. Uh, I, I only came in just to kind of check it out on a tourist visa and I was getting a little bit of cash under the table, uh, getting well paid. And I was like, well, I've got a bit of cash now, a bit of time. I'll do another travel. And I had this beautiful trip planned across California where I was just going to stage at all the restaurants that I really wanted to, to work at. Uh, and I had this all set up, and I got here exactly two years ago, which is when things got really, really weird in the world. I came to San Francisco. I spent two days here. It was great. And then I went, my, my first stop was Single Thread. And uh, I remember on my second night, Kyle comes up to me uh, in service, the, the chef there. Yeah. And he's like, um, I don't know if you heard, but... All flights to Europe have just been uh, banned, and like, there's no no more airplanes going. And I was like, oh shit. And whatever, we, we finished service, and then I checked my phone, and I got a bunch of emails. Basically, all the restaurants that I wanted to stage at, they just like canceled on me. They're like, sorry, just due to the pandemic, we're, we're not taking like people from the outside. And I was like, oh fuck. And I was only supposed to be at a uh, single thread for three days, and ended up staying there for like over two weeks. Uh, and they just really, really took me in. It was amazing. Like the, the, the restaurant manager, like he, he took me in. I was living with him because I was living in a hotel, uh, so I could start there. But like I was like, well, I can't keep doing this, uh, and I couldn't fly home. Uh, and things got really weird. But they took me in. They're some of the nicest people out there. Like just the absolute definition of hospitality. And we, we we stayed a bit longer at Single Thread, like cooking, and then unfortunately everything had to close. And then basically what happened is I just spent like a couple of weeks there, a bit of time just like drinking beers and like making barbecue and drinking ranch dressing. Like it was like it was just great. That's when I discovered ranch dressing, game changer. Then it got really weird because I had to. There was no flights, but I had to go back home, and my tourist visa was running out. I had to go home within a certain amount of time, where I would have gotten in a lot of trouble for overstaying my welcome, or I would have had to apply for like a special refugee visa, which would have been just really weird. And there was government flights coming over uh, to different areas. And when there was enough people in one area they'd, that applied, they'd send over a plane and you'd get taken home basically. And th there was this website, like it translated to basically something like fly me home. And, and you, had to, uh, you had to apply there. And it was really frustrating because, like, you could see when they were sending the planes and there was, like, loads going to Chicago, massive Polish community, decent amount of time going from New York, but, like, barely ever from, uh, from San Francisco. So I had to just kind of wait it out. Uh, and I was really, really lucky because I was stuck with some of the nicest people out there in California. And, it was, like, I couldn't complain. So you get home and then do you just hang out in Poland during COVID? Well, it was, it was weird because, like, nobody really knew how long it was for. I didn't have a job because, obviously, the whole America thing fell through. I was back at my parents' house. And then 
something really similar happened to my brother. So he was also back at my parents' house. So it was the first time in like over 10 years that we'd all been living under the same roof. And we spent a month together. It was, it was actually really, really fun. Like, we just did, like, it was summertime as well. It was just loads of barbecue and beers. Like, I, I'd cook for the family every day and, like, do really ambitious projects. Like, you know, like making, like, pitiviers, like, pasta on a daily basis. I, I was basically my family's private chef for that time. And it was really, really fun. But then I realized, well, I need to get back to work. And also, I was kind of holding out on Single Thread because I really, really liked it there. And they wanted me to stay, and I wanted to stay. And uh, there, there, we were in talks of, of me coming over uh, back again and, you know, just applying for the visa and all that. But then uh, Donald Trump banned all visas coming to the States. It was something like that because he said he doesn't want foreign labor because so many Americans have lost their jobs. The media headlines were... It was like countries in Africa and like Mexico and like South America, but obviously Europeans got lumped into that too. Oh, well. everybody did, yeah. So I, I couldn't come over, and uh, yeah, I just applied for a couple of places, and uh, Maison was one of them. I, I sent them an email. Uh, I'd, I'd eaten there a little bit before. I had lunch there. I thought it was great. It was, so, it was such a fun little spot in Paris, and also like. Going back to Paris was a kind of easy choice to make. I, I, I had loads of friends there. Like I, I knew the city, and it like it just made sense. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll just take a quick job in Paris, uh, like for a bit. And well, here we are. With Maison, you know, that opens. I think what 2019. It was like two years after. I think they planned on opening it or something like that originally. Yeah, it, it, it's been held back so many times for so many different reasons. But yeah. It had a one-year delay on, on when we were building it. Uh, there, there was a problem. It's very difficult to set up new places in Paris kind of from scratch, which is what Maison was. It, it's it's, a, it's be- in a house, right? Yeah, it, it's an entire house in, in the 11th of Paris, in one of the kind of coolest districts for food. So, so the location is incredible. Uh, the space is beautiful. But you have apartments to either side of you and uh, very annoying French neighbors. And that kind of caused a little bit of a delay getting all the licensing proper. Uh, and then it finally opens. And then the pandemic hits. And then, and then it reopened. And then we've had a big problem with, uh, with the way the restaurant was unfortunately built. We, we had a problem with our uh, exhaustion system. Uh, with our, and it was a case of our exhaust and our wood-fired ovens didn't work well together. And it was basically the motor that was installed was too big. And long story short, all the apartments around us are hearing a noise from a motor that's, uh, too sm- that was installed and it was too small. So it has to work overtime so it's extra noisy. And all the smoke is being blown directly into their windows. So that has to be fixed. That has to be fixed. I mean, t- towards the end of it, we're just like... Like neighbors just banging on the door, like saying they're gonna call the police, and like we were trying to run an ambitious restaurant here, and there's just like guys coming in and screaming at us. Um, so we're like, well, listen, like we we just need to pause this for a moment. And then comes the fact that we need to fix this problem, and uh, it was the case of insurance because it was three different companies that had built it, and everybody was saying it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. And it was who's gonna pay, and that took a, a little bit of time to sort out. And uh, finally, we're in works now. But in the meantime, while, while they were having these kind of internal legal battles with themselves, we, we reopened Maison for a small amount of time in the summer. So basically, I don't know if you've seen the layout of the building. So th- there's a big giant window at the front. 
and that kind of opens. So we decided that that was going to be our extraction system because we couldn't turn on our extraction system or use our wood fire. So basically, all of this stuff was just coming out the front. And we're like, Ooh, we can keep this going in the summer. And we reshifted focus. It was actually it was one of my favorite times at Maison because uh, it was just the three of us. It was me, Sota, and Rikako, our pastry chef. And, uh, and we shifted to an a la carte menu. And it was, it was really, really fun. It was the three of us. And we, we, we upped the amount of covers we did as well. Uh, to about 60 uh, and it was it was a lot of work and it was a lot of fun initially we, we planned on uh, we said we're going to open it as like a little wine bar sort of an idea and uh, we're going to have a maximum of seven uh, dishes on the menu and like me and Soth like, we, we get very carried away uh, we, we have ideas that we like we just want to put it on and we ended up opening with uh, 23 dishes on the a la carte instead of the seven that we planned so it was it was very rough in terms of just the service itself, but it was so fun. It was, it was such a good time. It's like a 40C restaurant, right? Is that just like the natural capacity of the space, or was that calculated at all? We could do more if, if we really, really wanted to. I mean, it's spread out over two floors, and uh, I mean, the natural capacity of the space, if we wanted to, we could fit 100 people in there. But uh, I think for what we do and, and kind of the, the ambitions that we have for the restaurant, that's a perfect size to kind of get things running for. So you're at Maison, and then obviously you guys close. Now, did you go and do any of the stuff at Chef's Club in New York? I wasn't involved in that. That was them. They went over, I believe it was a three-month pop-up, no? Yeah, it was like a three-month yeah. thing, yeah. And that was while Maison was being built. And that was kind of like a little bit of the core team. And, uh, oh, it must have been amazing for them because they managed to take over the entire team. I've only heard good, positive uh, things about that event. They had a really, really good time over there. And, yeah, it was, it was also a really good warm-up uh, for the restaurant itself, uh, I think. Good little practice run. So you've been bouncing around now. Do you guys know when you're roughly going to be back? We don't really know exactly when we'll be back. I mean, the works will be finished very, very shortly. We've, we've hit one more slight speed bump. We're going to find it. We're basically on the 23rd of March, so when this airs, we'll know when we will be able to reopen. It's just a case of exactly when. I, I mean, we were hoping that we'd come back from, from here and just roll right into it, and that this would be kind of the last pop-up, uh, which would have been amazing, like the last hurrah. And, uh, yeah, it's just not going to be the case. We're going to have to hold off a touch longer. Are you guys going to do any more pop-ups then? We're going to kind of have to wait and see. I mean, we already have a backup plan. If we don't, if we're not going to be able to reopen in Paris, we're going to go to Japan. There's Sota and the team. They just opened a little cafe uh, in Tokyo in Amatasando. It's called Down the Stairs. Basically, if push comes to shove, there's a kitchen there that we can cook and kind of run an event from. Uh, so we'll do that. Worst case scenario. When you guys do a pop-up, you guys go back home. Like, you're only doing, like, like a pop-up, like, a week out of the month, and then you go back home, and then you go do another one. Like, you haven't scheduled out, because you guys have done, like, four or five up to this oh, point, right? Oh, we've done way more than More than that? that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think this could potentially even be our seventh one now. Sometimes the turnover, like, right, is so, like, so quick. Like, we came back from Oman, we had two days in Paris, and now we came here. Some of them, like, that, that's what makes them brutal, is, like, we just get home to Paris, like, so if it gets back to his family, like... I get home, like, you just have time to do your laundry, repack, and then, and then we're off again, which makes it fun. I mean, 
we, we were going to do a, uh, a couple more. I mean, one, unfortunately, had to be, like, semi can Well, it didn't get cancelled. We went through, but we were doing a, a pop-up in, in Belgium that we came back from, and uh, we were going to go to Morocco next. Uh, and both, and that, that was only myself and Soto that went to Belgium. And uh, we came back, and uh, w without even realizing, like, we were ready to go, bags packed and all. We went to get our COVID test done, uh, PCR for flight, and we both turned out positive. So we weren't able to go to Oman. So uh, Rikako, our pastry chef, she ended up going on her own. Uh, and we, just doing like a dessert menu? Yeah, she, she did like extra desserts. And then the guy from the restaurant that was around the restaurant there, he kind of did his food and with Maison desserts. At least we were managed to do something, but oh, it was really annoying. Because we also didn't know when we got the COVID. So, like, with Soto, like, we were going, we were going to get tested every day. Just, like, because we didn't want to pass up on a trip to Morocco. Like, it looked insane. Like, like, she was putting up, like, the craziest shit up on Instagram every day. And we're just like, fuck, we're stuck at home. And that was a bit of a painful one. But we managed to come here. This is, this is definitely the one that we've been looking forward to the most. I mean, it's been, I want to say it's been a year in the planning, this one. It is, it's the most exciting one. And we can't wait to start tomorrow. And you guys change the menu every time, like here, like between your pop-ups. So, like the one you guys enjoy, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. different menu uh, than what you're doing I, here I mean, versus. We're going to change ours throughout the pop-up here as well. So we we have a menu now, uh, and we're going to run that one for the first two days, and then we're going to start making changes. I mean, it's also a thing of we'll get more comfortable with the kitchen, we'll get more comfortable with the team, and we'll see what works. We'll see what doesn't. We'll get some feedback from the customers. I know that there's a couple of dishes we, we have to change just because of uh, product availability and stuff like that. And also, like, we don't want to be blowing any budgets too much or more, more than we have already. Uh, so we, we, we're going we're gonna to definitely change it up a bit. There, there's going to be a, the king crab course that we're doing. That's going to come off after two days. And then we're going to play around with it a lot. And we're going to have fun. I, I think the team here is great. And uh, when, when you've got such a good team to work with, like we, we can do so much more spontaneous stuff, uh, which is going to be the, the really the fun part of it. You guys aren't putting like veal brains or anything on there, are you? Uh, there's going to be rabbit brains. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we, we're going to do, uh, there, there's going to be a rabbit and broad bean pativier, uh that we're going to do. And then that's going to be the main course. And after that, there's going to be just a tiny little uh, dish of uh, a morel. That's been stuffed with a rabbit brain, and we're going to grill it and glaze it slowly. And it's just going to be swimming in a little uh, rabbit consomme with some pickled garlic studded through it, uh, pickled uh, wild garlic studded through it. Brains doesn't really fly with American cuisine culture. How do you feel that dish is going to go over? I think it's, it's probably my favorite dish. And, and I, I think, just speaking to the team here, it's one that they're very excited for as well. So I think it's one of those things that it's going to go down extremely well with industry people. But, I mean, I don't understand if some people... But also, I think the fact that we're stuffing it in to the morel means it's not going to be so, like, in your face. Like, for example, the, the brains at Clown Bar were. Because it was... That's just, like, a piece of brain that looks like a piece of brain. <laughs> uh, and it's just been steamed, so it's, like, pale. It's not even caramelized, you know? It was just that, that simple thing. This one's a little bit more hidden. But I think, you know, people know, know they're coming to a fun event. And I think also the people that are coming, people that kind of are interested in these kind of events, usually tend to be a more open dining crowd. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that one will go down well. I, I, think, I think that's the most controversial one we have. The rest is 
it's all great. But I think if there's one that people will just reject without having tried it, it's probably that one. I'll make sure to message you like a couple weeks and, and see like what the response was that you guys got from the week uh, for that. Cause I'd be curious too, to find out like if any of them come back or like anything like that. Oh, I, I hope people don't send it back. I mean, I mean, I don't think they will, but I'm just curious as to like, like, I think like you said, it's not a chunk of brain on a plate. Like you got to remember, like in America, there's chunks of this country that like, if you put a whole fish on a plate, people like freak out i mean no sure but i mean i i think we're, we're at a great restaurant that also has an educated dining crowd with, with it uh to, to a certain extent I, I mean we tried to get some really crazy stuff but i mean we know like sometimes on certain things we we, we play it pretty tame we, we asked the guys if they can get antelope brain for us uh it was one of the questions but apparently that, that's not a thing because certain things I mean, wild game we can't wild like, game, have on the menu or yeah. whatever. Well, they use a lot of antelope here. So, so, so one of the dishes we wanted to do was uh, we wanted to do uh, antelope like a la royale. But then we were like, we need to try to get antelope blood and stuff like that, uh, which was j- just impossible from the game and like livers and which we, it's just not, not possible to use. But the rabbits that we got for like the brain from the, the, the rabbit lady that came in today. She's an absolute legend. She, she came in this morning, she killed them, and she's like, I thought you guys want the blood, so I squeezed them extra hard for you. And she just came in with, like, a, a little container of blood, and she's like, you'd be surprised. They don't have a lot of blood rabbits, but I squeezed as much as I could. So that's a bit funny. You guys, your style at Maison is, I think the term that I kept coming across was, like, uh, what do they call it, neo, like, bistro or something like that, which just sounds like a made-up term. It, it, it is a completely made, made up term. I, I think it's like the new Parisian bistro scene. I think that's quite mislabeling of what we do. I think uh, neo bistro is definitely kind of the style of like what clown bar was, and and that's what people associate Sota's food with, which it still has kind of veins and and uh, foundations in that. But I think it's it's definitely evolved uh, since Maison, and it's a it's a more serious space where we try to do slightly more serious food, but still keep it kind of fun and light. But, for example, like, Clown Bar was all a la carte. Like, we're going full-on tasting menus and we're really trying to knock people out of the park. Uh, I think it's difficult to label our style of food with just a word or, like, a sentence. I, I think we are a restaurant that we just, tr- I mean, obviously try to cook really tasty food, but also th- there's things that we put emphasis on as a restaurant, and that's... To keep it spontaneous, to constantly uh, keep things evolving. And, for example, we're a restaurant that puts a lot of emphasis on doing things a la minute, as late as possible, to kind of have that freshness of flavor and have as many things as possible done at the last minute. And I think that that's what really kind of defines us as a restaurant. I was telling the, the guys today, actually, because they were like, like, what was the biggest stitch-up that we've done? Because it's like, sometimes we'll do so much a la minute stuff, it's crazy. We had a dish on at one point which we only ran for one night because we just sank so hard on it. But basically we were taking lobsters and we were just having live lobsters in, in, like in the fridge and we were tying them and cooking them to order and then we were breaking them down, cracking them and then taking out the meat and then we would chop up the claw meat, stuff it into a courgette flour, wrap that and then steam that and that was all done in service. And like uh, that was the hardest we've ever gone down. It was crazy. We do do a lot of kind of like a la minute cooking and 
that's I, I think what kind of defines us a lot as a restaurant as well. You know, with your style, are you continuously trying to find like the line or like the boundary for guests like appetites and expectations? Because like here in America, there's you have like certain restaurants, uh, probably I'd say like a, a Linier, Vespertine, whatever. They're trying to like push this boundary of where does kind of food end and art begin? French cuisine, it's kind of like don't mess with the classics kind of thing, right? We're trying to push the boundaries while still being kind of respectful uh, of the roots that, that, that the food that we're cooking has. There's certain things that like you just almost it feels like you have to do in France and uh, those are things that we'll keep on doing like for example you know we always have to have like bread on the table there's always going to need to be cheese available if people want it and uh, your your main course is probably almost always going to have to be a red meat thing because that's just what what people expect and that's what people want and if French people don't like something they'll let you know about it but when we do these pop-ups that's when we can kind of get a little fun with these things and like it's stuff that we've never done before and it's stuff that we really want to do and we're only going to get to cook at Saison once uh, so when we do come here we really want to have a go at it and use the best kind of ingredients that are here local and we don't want to come and do the same thing that we do in Paris because one it's not going to be as good as it is in Paris if we do it somewhere else because well it's just different ingredients and we have to treat them differently and uh, two it's like we just get bored if we just cook the same thing the whole time. Like, How quickly do you get bored with a dish? Every chef's different. Some it's, I did it three times, I don't care about it anymore. Really depends on the dish. Like, if it's one that we'll really like, we'll, we'll kind of hang it around, let's say, for three days or something, four days, maybe a week. But then I like to kind of quickly take it off to then be able to bring it back. Because I think if I have something for too long, like... I'll just end up hating it or the, the repetitive motions of doing the same thing thing all the time. So if it's a course that we really, really like, we'll run it for maybe a day or two and then kind of take it off. But then we know we have it there when we kind of need a filler course or, you know, like let's start the week with something that we know this one's good because the, the other stuff is all a bit like, I don't know, like we're stuffing courgette flowers to order to kind of also strike that balance in a way. Is smoking still a big thing in Paris? What, like cigarettes? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because we don't really have that much here in America anymore. Oh, really? Nah, it's pretty much fizzled out. I mean, there are people that still smoke, but there's not really any advertisements or anything like that. They kind of yanked all the money out of it, so like, oh, like, there's not... the ads are gone and, like... Uh... But, I mean, well, that kind of all led to, like, people not really... Sm- like, my generation, you know, I'm 33, going on 34, like, nobody smokes. If you see anybody smoking, they're probably just out in public like outside of the, probably the restaurants like industry and everything but just general public they're probably at least in like their mid 40s oh no no it's still it's still a massive thing in france it's and people of all ages uh smoke a lot it, it's just it's almost been embedded into culture you know the, the whole like coffee and a cigarette on a parisian sidewalk is uh is as classic as a croissant if you will you know it's so with so many people smoking and obviously that kind of changes taste buzz that can change flavors too as well do you guys do anything with that with your food or is the food is the way the food is if you're a habitual smoker and like your taste buds are a little messed up like that's that's 100 percent on you and also the way we cook i think is we always cook the food that we want to eat and that's what the restaurant starts with it's like oh i'd love to eat that let's do that oh that sounds great let's put that on 
so I, I think obviously I'm not going to say like we, we, we ignore customers and, and don't, don't care about their taste buds. The, the, the food that we cook, we season it with our palate and we season it the way that we like to eat it. Hopefully that like resonates with the guests, but also like it, it gives them a different perspective. Throughout your career, you've done a lot of different things. I mean, is there like a style of food that you kind of gravitate towards, whether it's fine dining or refined or bistro style or casual, or is it just kind of whatever is trending, isn't trending? Like, do you run against trends? I think uh, what it always goes down to is just cooking the food that you really love and cooking the food that you want to eat. I also don't think all kind of categories need to be defined. I think people asking about style is like for a restaurant that does things kind of its own way it's a very difficult question to ask like what's your style well, our, our style is it's our style it doesn't have a name it's what we do and, and it's unique to us and I, I think because we are a new restaurant we're still kind of finding our style but you know if you look at more established restaurants let's say let's say the french laundry or saison you can look at a dish and you're like that's a saison dish that's a french laundry dish and I think that's a point that we definitely want to get to, where we have a style that's ours, and it's clearly ours. And you can look at a dish and you're like, oh, that's a Maison dish, which is some, something that we do want to work to. Is there a culinary trend that like, you see that you just don't get? Like You're like, why is that popular? Why are people doing that? I'm not sure. I, uh, I don't really look at that many trends, if I'm honest. I mean... We were talking about the other day. I've never had one, but what is a crab rangoon? I mean, in most restaurants, it's probably going to be imitation crab meat, which is really like, it's this white fish that they use in place of like, so if you go to some place like Red Lobster, have you ever heard of Red Lobster? I've heard of it. I've never been. Okay. Well, you don't need to go. But Red Lobster, some of the stuff that they'll have, they'll say like, you know, it's a lobster salad, but it's not actual lobster meat that they're using because lobsters are really expensive. So they use this like white trash fish that tastes allegedly similar to lobster and they'll use that instead so a crab rangoon is probably imitation crab which is some sort of trash wife you can find it in like grocery stores sushi or something like that and then it's just deep fried you can find real crab rangoons in authentic chinese restaurants or and whatnot and it's you know crab meat that's kind of like lightly fried and kind of twisted and everything and they're really good when you find like authentic ones it's kind of one of those things where like you have to look at the place that you're getting it from to kind of figure out if it's authentic. That's one of those trends I was wondering about because it's blown up like crazy. A lot of places are starting to have it on their menu, I think. Like even just your average kind of places. Like, oh yeah, starter crab ragoons. And you're like, this is not the place that I that should have this or why is this here, you know? Do you like working in an open kitchen? It really depends. It really depends on the restaurant. I like an uh, open kitchen, but I prefer one without a counter. It's not that I don't like interacting with guests. I just think it, it takes away from, from the job of cooking that we're supposed to do. And it's lovely for the guests, and, uh, but it's a personal preference. I, I don't mind it being open, but I'm not the biggest fan of working at a counter. Because you never know what you're going to get. And like sometimes at a counter, oh, sometimes you get the most horrible customers. And it just ruins your service. Like, I remember recently at Maison when we were open, oh, it was just right in front of me. There was this couple. And before they got into the restaurant, clearly they just got in a massive argument. And they just, and they weren't speaking to each other. And the, and the lady refused to eat. 
I, I, I just had to watch this horrible situation unfold in front of me. And it just, oh, it just ruined my night. So I think, you know, if you do have a counter, like, I'd love a counter where, like, where you'd only sit people that you know, but then that's also a bit, it's, it's not great for the average customer. So I, I think to be fair to everybody, no counter is the way. What's next for you professionally? Obviously, Maison, you want to get reopened again, start cooking there again too. But do you want to open your own restaurant one day? Oh, yeah, 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 uh, 100%. I, I think uh, I'll be at Maison for a little bit longer. And then, uh, and then afterwards that, I'll, I'll be looking to generally uh, start my own project and uh, hopefully open up something really, really fun and cool. Do you have any idea what that would be? Have you thought about it at all? I mean, there's always ideas and uh, you've got places, but I think not yet enough to be able to like confidently say exactly what it's going to be, where it's going to be and how. I think I'll, I'll definitely do kind of a little bit of traveling in terms of doing kind of pop-ups uh, on my own, look for some money for somebody that wants to spend on me. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm very open into kind of what people want to do and uh we'll see i mean it's also a weird time for restaurants in the world it's something that i think you always need to keep uh, your finger on the pulse and you can't just open something that you think is going to be right it has to be right for a city and as i said like i just want a restaurant that makes the city that you're in a more interesting place to be in and eat and uh you know it's important to be kind of part of the local community and just really kind of go with it and not against it so this question comes from our previous guest on the podcast, sommelier Taylor Burke, who's out in San Diego. She left behind a question for you. Even when your career gets difficult, what is the one thing that keeps you going? Ooh, that's a very good one. It's a very tough one. What keeps me going is like knowing that tomorrow is a completely new day and like you just start off fresh. You know what I mean? I, I think that's also... One of the rewarding things of working in, in restaurants and kitchens, it's there's a lot of instant gratification. And just because one thing hasn't gone right one day, like tomorrow you have a chance to do it all over again without yesterday's mistakes having affected it. The, the, the fact that you always get to go again really kind of keeps me going to where it's like if we've had a bad one, like it happens. It happens all the time, especially when we're so ambitious and we want to try all these uh, things and change things all the time. It's important to be like, okay, well, Tomorrow we go again. And also what keeps me going, I think, is just being part of a good team. The people around you are so important when it comes to restaurants and kitchens. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be related to food. Oh, okay, I'd like to know this. What would be the ideal outcome of your career? Like, the best way that it possibly could go, how would that be? This question comes from one of our listeners. So you're on a cooking tour while the restaurant undergoes some renovations. What's the biggest challenge with cooking in America versus cooking at the restaurant in Paris? The first few days are always difficult because you're in a foreign kitchen and you don't know kind of the produce and the stuff like that. The team here has been extremely accommodating of us and like they've let us come in, eat at Angler, eat at Saison, which has been great because we've been able to kind of see the produce. And we really kind of have some time with this event. In other ones where we kind of come in without, and we kind of have to just really hit the ground running without a lot of time, it's challenging not having seen the produce or kind of knowing the environment and creating a menu that we want to be kind of reflective of the environment that we're in. Because every pop-up that we go and do, we want to kind of, for example, this one, we want it to be a thing that could only happen in San Francisco. Because... 
we don't want to be repetitive, but it's hard to get the, the feeling of the ingredients in another place without having been there. And that kind of is, is the most challenging part. So this last set of questions, ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So there's a compare and contrast across all the episodes. So Paul will get these questions too as well. So he gets a little bit of a cheat. Who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Jamie Oliver. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Rubber spatula. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So Paris restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't Maison. Oh, yeah, it has to be in Paris. Uh, Mocha Nuts. It's probably my favorite restaurant in the world. It's so simple. It's so good. Uh, and it's run by the nicest people on the planet. 100%. I, I used to go there at, like once a week. And then I realized how much money I was blowing on it. And I had to slow down. But if I could, it, it's honestly a restaurant that I could eat at every day. Uh, and it's just so heartfelt. And it's incredible. You've been a lot of places, but... Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you haven't been to yet that you want to go to and place you haven't eaten at yet, but you want to eat at. Place that I really want to go to and explore. I want to go to like rural China. There's a place I've been trying to get into in the foothills of the Longjing Mountains in Longjing. It's just outside of Guangzhou, I believe, in China. And it's just like this super like crazy Chinese restaurant. It's, it's called Longjing Manor or Dragonwell Manor. And it's like... All the restaurant staff, they, they live on site and basically like they'll wake up in the morning and they'll start grinding soybeans on like the most old school machines. And that's just, it. I don't know a lot about Chinese food, but like I'd love to learn more about it and just but really do it kind of firsthand. And a restaurant that I haven't eaten. The thing is crazy because it's based on like Chinese banquet dining is like the style of it. So you need to go in like a bit of a group to be able to experience it to the full level. So you can get a bunch of different yeah. stuff. Yeah, because well, yeah, it's all like, you know, they'll do like a whole duck, a whole like thing of pork belly, whole fish. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, oh, stuff like that. A hundred percent. What should I choose? America or Europe? Wherever you want. Wherever I want. I'd say Lambrosie in Paris. It's this like mythical old three star that's only got a la carte. And it's just kind of the pinnacle of like luxury i've never eaten there i'd love to eat there that or actually that or uh pierre garnier but like if i'd ate at pierre garnier like I i'd need him to be in the kitchen because i've heard it's incredible when he's there and he's he's one of my favorite like kind of chefs well of all time and like it's one of those things i love him so much that i almost don't want to eat there because if it's a bad meal it's just gonna break my heart it's kind of like a what, don't meet your idols kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, exactly. Like, I've, I've got all his books. Like, I, I know his food well. And it's like, if it disappoints me, it's going to, oh, it, 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 I wouldn't be able to take it. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I once saw, I'm not, I'm not going to say the name of the restaurant, but I once saw, uh, a, a, and I saw on the cameras afterwards, an intern steal a whole lamb out the fridge. Just like, took it on his shoulder and left and just took it home. We were wondering where the lamb went. We had looked on the cameras and just shamelessly carried it out. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that's terrible for you, but you just can't help yourself, whether it's candy, fast food. 
not a big candy person in any way, shape, or form. I'm not a big sweets person, but things bad for you. I love fried chicken. That's an absolute guilty pleasure. Have you been able to have, you know, Popeyes, Bojangles, anything like that? Popeyes, I'm a big fan of. Big, big, big fan of. I think the spice, I think I'm going to order some tonight, actually, after this. I think Popeyes is absolutely deadly. They've just nailed it. It's immaculate. It's so good. They have this thing in Nashville. If you ever wind up there, it's hot chicken. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really want to go to Nashville. A friend of mine opened a place there recently, and it looks so good. Uh, I really, really want to go. What place? It's called Locusts. Oh, uh, Trevor. Trevor Moran. Yeah, yeah he Trevor. used to be the chef at the Catbird Seat. He's one of the greatest people on the planet, and he's got this dumpling obsession that is just on. Yeah, his whole restaurant's like noodles and dumplings. He came to, to hang out at Inua for a bit. While we were there, and he came for a couple of weeks, we hung out, we drank loads, and basically, um, at the best time, he found this restaurant, and he ate there every single night, and he just sat there, and, and I think at one point he'd like even sit there with a timer, just like trying to figure out how they'd get these dumplings so perfect. And he's got this kind of it's something that I don't have that I really admire in somebody when they have like the kind of the persistence to do one thing so perfectly and just like go down the rabbit hole of the obsession over one singular thing. Yeah, it looks so good. I'd love to eat there. Favorite dish, favorite thing you ever cooked, created? If you look back through your career up till now, you can kind of point to like this being your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a professional chef. Ooh, that's a tough one. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of a lot of the stuff that we do at Maison, but I think the pride from that comes also the fact that we're able to do it differently on a consistent basis. So I wouldn't say it's the fact that we do one singular thing that's like a thing so well, but the fact that we're able to do kind of really high quality stuff, fresh and new all the time, I think to me that's more of an aha moment and a, like importance than the one signature dish. Favorite Instagram account that you follow? Well, that's a real tough one. I like a lot of Instagram accounts. What's that one that like you don't skip over, like the story or... I don't skip on anything. I'm, I'm on it a lot these days, it's especially for the fact... Let me just flick it open. Bonjwing, who's here with us, I never skip on his stuff. He's got a very, very solid Instagram account. Yeah, let's go Bonjwing. But Bonjwing, or, or uh, actually Alan Passard. Alan Passard's got a fucking solid Instagram account. And like... Half of the stuff that he posts is so terrible, and the other half is just genius. It's, yeah, we'll go with Passard. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. Uh, if you were, was there a moment, episode, scene that stands out to you about him? If you weren't, was there anybody who was like a culinary personality, a TV personality? You mentioned Jamie Oliver earlier that you kind of gravitated towards. When oh, you're no, no, coming 100% up? Anthony Bourdain. He was big, big, big deal for me. Loved him to absolute death. I think... There's one episode that he did when where they went to Paris and they ate at Chateaubriand and uh, all these kind of tiny little bistros uh, around Paris. I think it was like it was even like the hundredth episode anniversary or something like that. And that really kind of uh, made me want to go to Paris and just kind of cook in these uh, in these kind of fun little kitchens. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug all your stuff. I don't have that much stuff to plug. I'm a very under-the-radar guy. Check us out at Maison. We're definitely, I'll back us in being one of the best restaurants in Paris, 100%. Uh, We're on uh, 3 Rue Saint-Hubert in the 11th of Paris. Uh, When we do reopen, definitely check us out. Uh, Check us out on Instagram as well, Maison Soto. Yeah, me, myself, yeah, check me out on Instagram. I, I post some funny stuff from time to time. Uh, umami issues umami understroke issues well look i really appreciate you 
taking some time out of the night before you guys start cooking for the week that you guys are here at Saison, doing this kind of last second cobbled together. But yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing it. I think it's a, a great episode. Really looking forward to seeing kind of what you guys come up with. I've heard a few different things, nothing like specific, but just general like ideas. And I've heard it's really ambitious about what you guys are, are trying to put out there this week. So it's going to be really, really fun. I, I think the, the team here has been fantastic with us. And knowing that they're so good, we're going to push boundaries even further uh, as the week goes on. Are you coming to eat? I think so. I don't know what day. I think it's either Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't know. I'm flying by. Uh, somebody else has the itinerary, and they just tell me where to be, and, oh, and that's kind of what's going on right now. So, But, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely uh, stay in touch, and I'll for sure be hitting you up. I want to know how the, the rabbit brain works out over the course of the week. All right, man. Thank you so much. Again, a big thanks to Marcin for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his night right before they started service when they were just wrapping stuff up. Spending about two hours just chatting about his career and, and everything, food and all that stuff. So it's a really fun episode to record in person. Again, shout out to Mark Bright for setting this whole thing up. Shout out to Paul Chung for staying late too as well, letting us use the bar area, hanging out in the background, doing some work and just kind of sitting in. And you'll be hearing more from Paul down the road here in a few weeks. So again, follow them on Instagram at umami underscore issues is Marcin's personal handle at Maison underscore Sota is the restaurant's handle. You can also follow Paul on Instagram at PB Kitchen, at Saison SF, at Angler Restaurants too as well, at Saison Hospitality, at Mark Bright Wine, at Saison Cellar, at Saison Winery, all that stuff. You can find all that stuff on the website too as well. We have all the individual pages for all the guests that have come on the podcast so you can find all their Instagram information and, and everything like that if you're looking for it too. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out the website, like I mentioned, SpoonMob.com. can uh, follow us on whatever podcast platform you use. Apple, a lot of people use, but we're on Spotify, Google, all the other smaller ones too as well. If you have a preferred player or whatever, look us up, give us a follow. That way all new episodes go right directly into your feed and into your device. Appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here since the beginning or been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. We appreciate everybody helping spread the word and constantly listening to new episodes. Keeps growing and growing. We're getting, I know we're above 800, I think, Instagram followers. We're getting probably crossed like a thousand by the end of the year. So appreciate everybody, you know, being interested in what we're doing. Um, we love kind of recording these things and getting to know different chefs and, and everything like that. So it's been a lot of fun so far and looking forward to just more amazing episodes with amazing people and super talented people that, you know, care and, and give a shit about what they're doing. So that's it for this week. We will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.